0: Welcome to Seed Heads, the cross-pollinating podcast where our Canadian seed heroes tell their stories, share their how-to tips, and talk about the seeds they love. I'm your host, Steph Benoit, coming to you from Ottawa, Ontario, on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Today, I had the true honor of talking to Anand Lololi. Anand is a food sovereignty activist, seed saver, and musician who joined me from his home in Toronto on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. For over 20 years, Anand was executive director of African Food Basket and now chairs Toronto's Black Food Sovereignty Working Group. Anon was an early leader in the food justice movement in Canada and continues to advocate passionately for the food sovereignty of Black folks and other marginalized communities. In this episode, we talked about one of his favorite veggies to cook with and save seeds from, Callaloo, the history of his work, effective allyship from white people in the food movement, and so much more. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Well, hello, Anand. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon.
2: I'm I'm honored to be here to take part in this um, conversation on seeds and food sovereignty. Um, yes, it's definitely an honor for me to be here.
1: Well, thank you. We were just, before we, we started recording, just chatting about how busy you've been. And maybe um, you could speak a little bit to your different roles previously with the um, African Food Basket and now as the chair of Toronto's Black Food Sovereignty Working Group. What are the things that have been keeping
2: you busy? Well, first, I'd like to acknowledge the land on which i on. Operating on in Toronto and our, my responsibility to steward it well. Mm-hmm. Thousands of years, this has been the traditional territory of the Yuan Wendat, the Seneca, Seneca the Ashnabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat people, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit. But Toronto is also the home of people of African descent. These communities are a reflection of the generation, current and past, and represent the ancestral history of those brought to the city and country involuntary as a result of transatlantic slave trade. But today, this is the meeting place to still home to many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people from all across Turtle Island and the proud people of Africa and the vast diaspora. Mm. This territory of ceded land covered under Toronto Treaty 13 of upper, upper Canada Land Surrenderers. Well, um, as I said before, it's an honor to be here and talking about this city that I love so much. Uh, we like to tout ourselves as the most diverse city in the world. And really and truly, my seed even experience has been out of this world because I have been able to see the world in a garden in this mm-hmm. city. Um, I could tout myself as one of the people, one of the persons who really establish and help community establish most of the community gardens in Toronto. Uh, I've worked on over a hundred backyards and community gardens all in all um, but a lot of work intentionally in what we call community garden animation that mm-hmm. is going into communities and helping them to animate the garden you know animation bring things to life yeah but it's about bringing these communities and predominantly The work I did is in low-income communities. And Mm -hmm. the low-income communities is where you will find the new immigrants who come to Toronto who are now getting the opportunity to give the children good health care, good education, and hopefully a good meal. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And with them, they bring the culture of food with them. Mm -hmm. So... Many of them brought some interesting features uh in the in the in the different species of seeds and variety. So I know our conversation will be a lot on my favorite Kalaloo. Yes. Was, um. Over twenty-seven years ago I was one of the founders of the African Food Basket and it was a consumer nonprofit food buying club. We're members Of the consumer co-op would buy uh, a small basket of food for $15 or a large one for $25, and every every couple of weeks uh, in the month we distribute this food to the community. Mm. We did that for 11 years, and then decided we want to go to food to put in the basket,
3: Mm.
2: and it so happened for the last two. Plus years, we have been doing just that. We have been complementing the tropical foods that we put into the food basket with the foods that we're growing on the farm. And that includes kalaloo, that includes some okra, that in- includes some kale, some chard, tomatoes, and most importantly, we've been growing garlic at a tremendous rate. In <laughs> yes. So, uh, so we, 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 in in between the eleven years, from the second year, we started actually looking at urban farming,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and we grew a, a quarter acre of, of of garlic just outside Toronto, about fifteen to twenty minutes outside Toronto, and um, and in that set, same year, we had a, a strategic gathering with some uh, some real knowledgeable folks within the Black community, like Winston Husbands. He was a food policy expert, uh, Nene Kopfeli. His work was on community development and African-centered teaching. Salomon Boye. He was he was a master gardener and a horticulturist. Uh, he's the City, City, Toronto Community Garden Coordinator, uh, more like a manager for that particular area of parks, and Rec. And then Yuga is a brother from Uganda. Who his type of program was an environmental program. So it really cover all the, 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 the focus areas that from that time in nineteen ninety seven to present. That we look at uh, growing food, urban agriculture, and growing it ecologically, uh, uh, with an ecological bent and it being organic food. And also we look at making sure we look at food policy and also look at the food would have an African centered perspective. I would say probably similar similar to uh, indigenous food sovereignty. We started looking at Black food sovereignty from a pretty early age, early time.
3: Mm-hmm. We, didn't,
2: we didn't call it food sovereignty in those times. We call it community food security.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, we were delivering these what we call culture specific baskets. And it had things like avocado,
3: mm.
2: coconuts, plantain, eddoes, yams. Sweet potato and also the Kalaloo. Sometimes we put in, um, Swiss chard. It had what we call in Caribbean Irish potato, onions, garlic, oranges, mangoes. So when folks get oh that basket, when folks get that basket, especially the seniors, it was an absolute delight. Especially oh my gosh. Yeah. The, that's a feast in the middle of winter. When they get that basket, you know, I mean, we get so much of praise and we get so much thank you, hallelujah. It was a blessing, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, and and the, the little, the, the the young children in, the, in these families, and these are young children who grew up and born in Canada. Mm-hmm. They can't wait for a pack of and chips. they are first, They're accustomed to, you know, potato chips and. You know, um but when they get planting chips it's like wow. Oh my
1: gosh. Yeah, this they, is how it's supposed they, to be
2: <laughs> They just run for the basket and take off the cover, dive in and, and sometimes there's a fight for the planting chips.
1: <laughs> I don't blame them.
2: Yeah. So but in the summer of nineteen ninety eight we also started a, a youth food program called A full A Youth Program. Okay. We we realized um we want to make sure Black youth got involved in food programming, especially growing food and cooking. Mm. And cooking, growing food, and knowing about culturally-specific foods. because, you know, they grew up in apartment buildings and um, they don't have a sense of where food is grown. Right. We focus, we focus a lot intensely on the low-income communities. Right. Because we want to make sure we bring community food security to the most vulnerable in communities.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we engage these young people from these communities, and they got a chance to know about food, but they got a chance to get a cultural orientation as people of African descent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that run that, that from 1998 until present, every year we run youth programs. Wow! And it, it it varies according to the funding opportunities, but we have been consistently having them on the ground. But in community gardens or in urban farms. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and because we have access to urban farming with the young people, we started what we call incubator farming.
3: Mm.
2: We able to get black farmers to get the opportunity from urban areas to be able to farm. So like we have a, a two-acre farm, and uh, we would give uh, farmers between a half acre and an acre, the eighth of an acre. That's the eco farm, So they get a chance to really try out what farming could feel like.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And they would go to food, and then the African food basket, we would sell the food at farmer's market. And we've done that for a number of years also. Mm.
3: Uh,
2: so it's incubator farmer. We call it farms, like learning farms, so people could come and learn to farm. And at the same time, they get a piece of land and get the farm also at the same time. So we also did that for a number of years. So we did. People, the opportunities that they need. And sometimes we had over 20 farmers.
3: Oh, wow. Uh,
2: yeah, because sometimes a, a, a half acre or eight of an eighth of acre might have four people on that farm. Oh, wow. So, and the idea is to make sure people could work together cooperatively so that mm-hmm. they could see how they could eventually purchase land and, uh, and work together to manage a larger farm with an most number of acres. And we got some good opportunities where we see folks able to step out the program and do just that.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. And these days you're now working with the Black Food Sovereignty Working
2: Group in Toronto, correct? Yes. Yes. And, and this, this, this is my, my main area of focus because, uh, in 2019, um, we approached the city mm-hmm. because, uh, the city of Toronto, um, have a, a pretty unique program uh it's it's called the confronting anti black racism um unit. Now I don't think anywhere in the world have a confronting anti black racism unit in the city council.
3: Mm, yeah. And
2: and because of, of of the many because of the many um recommendations to the city over the years from the nineteen sixties straight up It was always recommendations, and they were never carried out. So the city stepped up to the plate and said, you know what? We can set up this unit, and they're doing a great job. Because the studies continue to show that anti-black racism still exists in the city of Toronto, Mm -hmm. uh, affecting the life and chance of more than 300,000 people of African descent. One of the recommendations was the area of food.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And uh, so we approached them because of, of our... Over 24 years experience at that time.
3: Right.
2: In food programming in Toronto. And without Bragna Boson, we probably the first culturally specific programming in food at a food institution mm-hmm. in Canada at that time.
3: Oh, wow. Uh,
2: so when we approach them, we approached them with tried and tested food systems programming. Mm-hmm. What we would do, we would come into partnership with them. We establish, um, look at the possibility of exploring the area of black food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So from that time to now, we we have uh, we initiated community dialogue with, uh, with the black community Toronto and, to and um, on what is food sovereignty and what is culturally appropriate food that is produced ecologically sound and a sustainable method and their own right to defining their own of our culture and food system.
3: Mm-hmm. And it was
2: good conversation because Toronto is one of those beacons of light in mm-hmm. general yeah. where sustainable food systems happen. Lots of things happening here, but it didn't have that cultural focus lens. Although there's the most diverse city, one of the most diverse city in the world, we still have problems of anti-black racism. So we were able to organize and engage our community. Anti-black prison is one of the greatest predictors of food insecurity for mm. African Caribbean and Black New Toronto. So, food insecurity. We have a situation where over a third of Black children are food insecure, compared to eleven percent of White children. The backlash of something like that um, in one of the most wealthiest countries in the world is, is definitely embarrassing and atrocious. That need to be remedied. So.
3: Absolutely,
2: advancing yeah. Black food sovereignty has been a very positive move forward. So the the the, the report that uh, that Toronto Border Health put forward uh, is that they provided an update on the creation of a Black food sovereignty plan to improve access to affordable, healthy, and culinary-appropriate food as part of the city of Toronto's COVID nineteen response. Mm-hmm. And from my experience. Over this twenty-seven years, I've been doing this work. I realize the the, the, the challenge and the systemic barriers uh, of of increasing access and opportunity and ownership of the food system has to be by the Black community,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because due respect to all my colleagues, uh, and and these are mostly the the, the, the institutions that are white-led. Mm-hmm. They're doing a good job, but the job is not enough.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Because food has such a cultural lens, it needs the people in the community, just like indigenous food sovereignty, to be able to determine where it's going. Absolutely. So there's lots of money is going to these uh, huge organizations, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. These organizations need to come into the black community to develop the leadership, the skills, and the knowledge. Instead of giving a person a fish, we show them how to the fish.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
2: they would be able to look after themselves. It's basically it's as basic as that. Right. That we need because you know what I mean like people of African descent been in Canada since sixteen oh four. We're not just to come.
3: No. <laughs> been
2: landing in Nova Scotia since sixteenth to seventeen hundreds and We've been coming through, Well, it be Alberta or well it be Ontario uh, at, at Windsor. We've been here a long time, but it's hard to identify a Black farming community.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah.
2: So we, we are at a point where the conversation on Black food sovereignty is to really change the paradigm of how we look at development of sustainable food systems mm-hmm. uh, that are culturally specific. Mm-hmm. You know,
3: in your
1: opinion, is that sort of what differentiates food security from food sovereignty? You know, you were talking about before the model was sort of like a food security lens, and now it's shifted towards more of food
2: sovereignty. Yes, what what, what we've been articulating for a number of years, food sovereignty, really, because honestly, for me, um, we started around 1995. We started 1995. And the Food Sovereignty Movement actually, I think, started in 1996. Right. So we were actually practicing urban food sovereignty from that time because we were growing food organically.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: we, were, we intentionally had an African-centered lens on the work we're doing. Mm-hmm. That this is what we're doing. The food has to come from a cultural lens. It has to be culturally appropriate. Mm-hmm. The menus... We work with Black youths for Black youth leadership in the movement. Mm-hmm. So we've we been doing this, but of recently we realized we need because the whole concept of food security has been co-opted by corporations and this whole takeover mm-hmm. where they buy out seed seed companies, and it's 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 a it's a it's a most unsustainable way of looking mm-hmm. at, at at food of the future, right? You know, so we realize food is a human right. So food has to be managed by the people and not as a commodity. Yep. Um, and, and it has to look at the, the, the key focus and principles of food sovereignty to be something that is workable to advance um, the, the area of sustainable food systems.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So coming back to what you were saying before about having food be culturally appropriate and some and your love of, of Callaloo. Could you talk a little bit about Callaloo for someone who's never tried it, um, what it is and, and why it's so important in the Black community in Toronto?
2: Well, my dear, you're missing out. <laughs> Callaloo no. is definitely up there as one of the premier leaf vegetables. Mm. Now, I've been eating kalu. I'm originally from the northern coast of the Amazon. Uh, where the Atlantic meets the rainforest in Guyana, in South America.
3: Mm.
2: And, uh, I've been eating Callaloo from that time. Now, the variety I grew up eating in, in Guyana is a little different than the one that I predominantly grows up here. The one I predominantly grows up here is a variety that comes from Jamaica. they okay. Jamaican Callaloo. Because at the, at the University of the West Indies, they've been breeding these, this particular variety. So the popular variety of Callaloo is the Jamaican calaloo. The leaves are are, are much larger mm-hmm. than the Asian varieties. And my time in Toronto, I've been growing calaloo in my backyard since the 80s. And a lot of times, it's the Jamaican variety or it's the Greek variety oh, okay. because because Amaranth, it, it, the Kalu come from the, 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 the main, um, the main group, I would say, when you talk about Kalu is, is Amaranth. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the variety from Jamaica is uh, one of from the Amaranth family. There's so many varieties and so many species, uh, everyone go into that. That, mm-hmm. the, 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 the whole, that whole area is something that needs to be looked at. Right. But the, the the variety from Jamaica we've been saving these seeds over and over, and uh, I I also like to make sure that from time to time I order seeds from Jamaica just to get a fresh variety because the 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 uh the pollination process the cross pollinate very easily. Mm-hmm. Now in Toronto, um, on the farm we have a farm right here, Jama Farm in Toronto, we. City cross fertilization, and there's a wild variety that grows in Toronto. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. The the leaf is a bit paler and it seeds pretty quick. Okay. But I would tell you that variety to me is a much more nutritious variety than the variety from the Caribbean. Hmm. It tastes more earthy, It it tastes more natural. Mm hmm. The thing about it is that it doesn't look good. It have a kind of a pale green.
3: Mm-hmm. It, it,
2: it's not like, like in 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 food culture. If you see a carrot in a food store and it look kind of look funny, you yeah. would go for the one that look good. But sometimes the sweet one is that one that you pass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You never know. You just assume looks are yeah. deceiving. Yes. You know? Well, I would say the same thing about the local kalu, and because. Like in one calaloo plant, you could get between thirty to forty thousand seeds.
3: Oh my gosh!
2: You know that's why the variety that grows traditionally in Ontario, Ontario farmers call them call it pigweed, mm-hmm. and they, they feed it to pigs and animals. Now, what they don't know is that this same calaloo that they feed it to pigs and animals, well they might have the wrong variety, but Callaloo that they feed the pigs Because they grow the same way. You know right. what I mean? If you take that variety and you grow them singular, it, it, it could come out to be something. We never experiment enough with it, but they feed it to pigs. This same leaf vegetable is the most expensive leaf vegetable in Toronto. Callaloo. Hmm. Whether you go in a Caribbean food store or whether you go in an Asian food store, it's the most expensive leaf vegetable. Now, because the African food basket and the work we do and we popularize Kalalu so much across the board, not just for people from the Caribbean, because we've been selling it at farmers market and people have been buying them by the bunches. Mm-hmm. Not small people are growing Callaloo. So the price has come down a bit, even for organic Kalalu. You know, it's supply and demand. You got, you got lots, you get it at a reasonable price. If it's shortage, it's a more expensive price. So now everyone's growing kalu. People who grow it in the backyard, all the farmers from the Caribbean and Africa, they grow it in the in the in the, uh, in the farm plots. Mm-hmm. So so that's a good thing because at first I used to be batting for Jamaican farmers that they could send the kalu up here and you know uh, so we don't have import substitution. Mm-hmm. But, when I, but when I look at the state of the world and the environment. I realized, you know what, we have to grow as much food here as possible. That is why it's important, and I know the Ontario government is way behind. They don't have a clue. They're still still seeing the food system as a European food system in in the most diverse province in the world, in Ontario, Mm -hmm. and they're not growing a lot of these tropical foods. But we realized, you know what, we can't keep importing this food from Jamaica no. and Pakistan, when this food could be grown here. Right. And, because, and
1: there's demand for it.
2: Yes. And and because the Ontario farmers, um, they stick to their cultural foods that they traditionally grow from Europe. Um, There's it's not a large enough variety of foods. No. Ale, chard. They could go okra. They could go callaloo. They could go bitter melon. They could go lamb beans. They could go pap chai. So, like pap chai, I... Pak chai is one of the popular foods from Guyana. These mm-hmm. vegetables. Okay. But growing Pak chai in Toronto, it produces a larger plant hmm. than in the Caribbean. Wow. And also, it's very weather tolerant. A pak Chai plant can grow till about November. Oh my gosh. In Toronto. Wow. Hallelujah. By the time, mid-September, well, this year is a whole lot of things, global warming, Kallu's still blooming because it's still warm. It's usually colder now, but by the time this time of the year, usually the Kallu's starting to come out of season because it can't take the cold. Right. So, saving the seeds of these country-specific foods, these new immigrant foods, these so-called, they call them war foods, I don't know where they get that from, but... Mm. uh, they should be growing more of these foods so that we won't have to be importing these foods from all across the world. Mm-hmm. But so they should make an intentional effort to support a lot of folks who come to this country as new immigrants, who have degrees in botany and horticulture. A lot of these people, a lot of these people, you know, they're not working within the food system. No. You know, and that is sad. You know, I know this good sister, my name Khadija. She had a degree in botany from in Somalia. And she driving a school bus. Yeah. She should have had a, a good job promoting the foods that she know mm-hmm. from Somalia and have the same opportunity with her degree, you know. But we're working on it. That's why when we talk about black anti-racism, these are some of the areas that we know we need to look at. So the with with the with the Black Food Sovereignty Plan, hopefully we promote the idea of color more and the idea of people saving the seeds. Mm-hmm. So that much more people could be growing calories, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so every year, you know, maybe we, 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 we as I said, one plant could grow nearly over 20,000 to 30,000, seeds. If you, if you grow it in, in a way just for the seeds. Right. Oh mean, so, so imagine just one plant, you're able to have enough calories for a couple of acres. Well. Yeah. That particular, you know? Mm-hmm. So, 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 so we've been doing that for a while as I've been doing that even before I got involved in food systems work. They've been growing So, yeah. It's a,
1: it's a very generous plant, it sounds like. Very generous with its seeds.
2: Very generous. And, you know, when you, when you talk about Callaloo and, and the, the original, uh, the scientific name Amaranth, it all goes back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Because, um, people, the, the Aztecs and the Incas, they use it, um, they use it in their religious ceremonies, you know and I mean, they use it in, in chocolate. It, it has even been said that because of the way they use it, European colonizers actually banned them from planting amaranth. Hmm. And it has something to do with the religious way they're doing stuff. You know, colonization—they try to change up everything. You know, everything got to be, uh, holy Mary, Mother of God, Jesus, uh, you know? they, they, they. The folks, the Incas had their own thing, and Kalaloo uh, Amaranth was a major part of that religious and cultural tradition.
1: Wow. It's also so interesting to think about the way that um, one plant can be culturally significant in so many different places as the plant travels and the people who are attending it travel and that now, um, you know, in a place like Toronto, something like Amaranth, um, or Kowloon can really thrive under the stewardship of people who have brought it with them because it's, it is so important to them and it is, it holds an important place in their culture.
2: Yes. And, and as, I, as I said, this city is so blessed. Yeah. As, as the Indigenous people said, the Toronto, the meeting place.
3: Yeah. A
2: place where people meet and people actually meet because what I love most about the city is the Hmm. I've, I've been a vegan for over 45 years.
1: I've that's wild. I mean, that's so impressive.
2: <laughs> and in this city, I could eat Chinese vegan. I could eat South Asian vegan. I could eat Caribbean vegan, especially the Rastafari food. We call them Ital food. I could eat um, African-American vegan. All types of different vegan options.
3: Yeah,
2: uh, that's the best. In this city. So that's the best. And just the same way, they bring their seeds. You know, mm-hmm. as I said before, I, I see people saving seeds in community gardens and they grow all different types of vegetables. That is what I enjoy most as being a community garden animator. You can yeah. the uh, There's this one particular garden I like to talk about. Actually, it's one of the largest community gardens probably in the whole of North America. It had over hundred and ten plots. I have over 110 plots, because oh, yeah. the average community garden would have at least 15 to 20 plots. I this know. garden had over 110 plots and it it was in an area is mostly predominantly Middle Eastern and it's with this family from Lebanon. Mm. This woman was growing her whole plot. In one particular type of herb.
3: Her it whole plot?
2: Her whole plot. The, 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 I think the um the particular vegetable that she was growing, I think it was either $14 a pong. I can't remember the name of the plant, but it was so expensive that she could grow this whole plot and the plot is about 4 by 12, you know what I mean, 4 feet by 12 feet. And um, so I see people doing all these different growing all these different types of food, like, you know,
3: they would
2: come, they finally would come from whether it be Lebanon or whether it be Afghanistan or the Congo or Kenya or China and they would bring the seeds.
3: Yep, yeah.
2: Sometimes people say it's illegal, but, you know, you, you have a couple of seeds and you just bring it in and you just, and they start growing it. Mm-hmm. Right now in Toronto, man, they need to do much more work to, to Encourage people to do that, especially when we talk about global warming and climate change. Because mm-hmm. we could go more.
1: Well, and food is so wrapped up in our identities, you know? I, there's, like, no culture without food.
2: Exactly. There's no human race without food. Okay? I like to tell people, food is the single most important thing the human being. There's nothing more important. You can live naked in a cave. <laughs> You've got to get food. Yeah. Okay? You live in a cave, you got to get food. You yep. know what I mean? And I got to tell people, yeah, this one of the things that we started in Toronto is we call it the Toronto Urban Harvest Festival. We invite all organizations and gardeners to come and celebrate um, the harvest of the city.
3: Mm.
2: And it, it was such a beautiful thing to see people coming from all these different places because if you look back way way back to early human development the biggest celebration was probably when they eating food
3: mm.
2: whatever it is whether it be meat or, or grains this celebration is when they eat food yeah when you eat food and you fall, you start dancing and get excited you imagine <laughs> you imagine the first set of humanoids who travel this earth Eating food had to be a celebration.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah, there is something so celebratory, especially when people, they all bring something that's significant to them and then to share that is like, like you said, you can't help but dance.
2: There's something about it. Yeah, dance. That's right. That's right. You know, you, you want, you want to see a, 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 a child get excited? You give him his food, give him his bottle or whatever. After that, that child is bouncing around and doing things that you can't be, and you know, that's natural. Yeah. So, the celebration of food, like like when we talk about Black Food sovereignty, one of the biggest festivals in Africa is what they call the YAM Festival.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, doing this work and working in Black community, I realize people of African descent is what it's call it, YAM people. I didn't even know about the festival. I used to just celebrate because one of the things people of African descent do, they cook soup.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, they cook this soup with peas and ground provision and other vegetables. And, uh, like with my parents, my mother used to cook what you called split pea soup. That's a special for Guyana, probably some other places, are um, black-eyed pea soup. Mm-hmm. And they always make sure they have yams inside. That's why when people talk about using Bolt, they say, oh, using Bolt? When they talk about he using steroids or using drugs, the drugs he's using is yam. <laughs> okay, He's using yam. And that's, Special sweet potato that comes from Jamaica. That is what got them running so fast. He and Shayda. <laughs> they're running the yam. The yam got them running so fast. You know what I mean? Big America yeah. with over 40 million people of African descent and so many hundred thousand of people and still they can't catch the Jamaicans. It's because of the yam, <laughs> potato, and probably the callaloo. You know?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask as well, like a lot of your work has been with youth over the years. And what's your experience been getting young people involved with seed saving or with, um, growing traditional foods that, uh, maybe they didn't grow up in a country where that food was being grown, but this is being passed down culturally.
2: Well, first of all, I'm, I'm so honored to be able to work with youths in the seed of It's been my best experience Mm. that it has kept me young. Yeah. Well. Uh, I, I, as a musician, um, you know, I, I, I honor their respect. I get a chance to get into hip hop music and, and, and be part of that tradition because I like to stay in touch with what they're doing. Now, the combination of, of programs that we had for young people is, um, youth leadership. Mm-hmm. It was, it was more so of building the leadership. Mm-hmm. And not so much in food systems, but just their being leaders.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And other than youth leadership, it's like job skills. We want to make sure because I say we, we work intentionally with with youth in low income communities.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We want to make sure we encourage them to stay in school. We had a, what we call a community food security program where they learn about what is food security, mm-hmm. what is a sustainable food system, from seed to table. And we also learn them about food justice mm. and the component of growing food. So they learn how to grow food and they learn how to grow, most importantly, culturally-specific foods. So we empower them so mm. that uh, they can tell their children now, no, we just eat kalaloo, We don't necessarily eat Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts, or uh, kale. We eat Callaloo, Pak Chai, bitter melon. That's what we eat. Mm-hmm. So, 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 in in learning how to grow the food, they learn how to grow the food, they learn how to harvest the food, they learn how to sell the food at farmers market. So, engaging the young people in, in all aspects of sustainable food systems. Mm-hmm. So they learn, they'll also learn a bit about saving seeds. So, they learn how to sa- save bitter melon, learn to save, um, what we call, uh, long beans. In the Caribbean, you call them bodhi and bora. They learn how to save kalalu. And and they learn how to grow calorie plants too, so that they get a, some sense. The main idea is not for them to really become farmers. We shouldn't allow them went in that direction, but to know about the food system. Can You grow up in an apartment building. Like some kids grow up in an apartment building. And they drive in the countryside and they see, they see a cow and they call it a deer. Like they they can't they can't relate with food come from. I, I I engage young children between the age of six and eleven. And you ask them where food comes from. And you know what answer you get? McDonald's, yeah. Wendy's, Burger King. They didn't have a, set, a clue. That's why our it work was it intentionally to make sure community gardens were at the back of these apartment buildings.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Or back at these townhouses in low income communities. So the children could actually see where food coming from.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Tell you, when they see a cherry tomato on the tree, plant and they pick it and they eat it. That is is what it call real magic for those kids. Yeah, it is magic. Definitely.
1: Yeah. There's so many kids who don't know where their food comes from. There's also so many adults having so many conversations just to get beyond like okay food doesn't just come from the grocery store but to take it one step further and like food comes from a seed and to get that seed you have to grow a plant with the intention of growing a seed and just that whole cycle and continuing it further. Um, it's just, yeah, it's one of the greatest gifts I think you can give a kid is to, to let them in on the secret early that food is magic and it is. That's right. That's right. I have two more questions for you. We
3: can, okay.
1: we can, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up soon just to respect your time. But, um, so my, my first last question is there anyone out there who you want to sort of uplift or shout out who's doing really important work in this space that you think people should also check out?
2: Um, my good brother, he's in Detroit. Do, you, do you, You're doing interviews with folks from the U.S. also or just Canada?
1: Just Canada, but there's lots of people who, you know, what are colonial borders anyway?
2: <laughs> okay, okay. If we're not looking at colonial borders, i have definitely said Malik Yatini. That is my special brother. He lives in Detroit and he is doing some tremendous work. Right now they set up what you call a People's Food Co-op. That alone, for people of African descent, is a model for development. In Toronto, if I see change, um, and those is the folks who sponsor in this program, is definitely Ama, teacher, the Oahu, mm-hmm. I'm getting in trouble because I might pronounce on so Iran, but, but Sister Ama, there's one thing I would say uh, for sure you should speak to my good brother from Somalia. His name is Bashir Monier. He is a, he's a chef, he's an activist, a food sovereignty activist, and he's also a, a, a professor at George Brown College teaching culinary arts and cooking and that kind of stuff. Um, who else, um, my good brother, who is at uh, his food policy, his name is Winston Husbands. Um, another young person is Nicole Austin, you know, so there's folks who are actually doing some pretty interesting, uh, and, and the movement is getting much more stronger. We need, we need much more sustainable food system soldiers to fight this mm. battle of food insecurity.
1: Coming back to what you were saying earlier. At the forefront of these movements needs to be people in the communities who are, or people from the communities who are affected. You know, that is something that is so uh, foundational is to lift up the people who are in those communities um, to empower them to do the work. In your perspective, how can organizations that have historically been largely white-led or currently largely white-led meaningfully ally themselves with organizations like the Black... um, food sovereignty,
2: uh, project in Toronto? Um, allyship. My sister, allyship for me has to be an area of study, especially in the food system. Now, sometimes people take colonization. Racism and all these discriminated attitudes for granted that that is what it is, mm. and and that 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 is what white supremacy does. It normalizes everything. So a lot of my colleagues sometimes there's a, there's, a saying, there's a there's a term called invisible racism that they don't even know that they're shodding like a ghost. Mm. The racist behavior and people who I admire in many ways. But they need to look at the study of racism. A lot of them, the poor thing say, no, I'm not racist. I'm not saying you're not racist. What I'm saying is that we need to have an area of study. Mm -hmm. Very important. I was at the beginning of the food justice movement in North America. A quick story. I was at a conference in 1999 in Chicago and it was the Community Food Security Coalition of North America. And they had over 500 member organizations, the largest nonprofit alliance of food security <laughs> organizations. I went to Chicago and when I look around, I was probably the only person of African descent in the room. I came to it from Toronto in a city like the US of A. Yeah. In Chicago. But so had a large percentage of black folks. You know when I saw a black person? When they went on tour, they usually go and tour, low-income areas.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, at that gathering, they call, like at a conference, they usually call for the committees so they could contribute to developing the coalition.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And they call for the outreach and diversity committee members to meet and plan. So, they had outreach and diversity, that policy, that youth, that faith based, that urban agriculture, and several other committees. So, when I went to the room at the hotel for outreach and diversity, I was the only person in that room. Mm. So, what that said to me now, this was an institution I think they were getting about six million US dollars a year from the US Department of Agriculture. Oh, God. These white folks in the room, they were interested in faith, they were interested in organic, they were interested in policy. Everything except outreach and diversity to bring the most food insecure into the room to learn about the leadership. It took five years more for the outreach and diversity committee to really consolidate and become a committee. And that was at another conference in Boston. Same community food security coalition. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that out of these, this group, it was established that this group was the champion for food justice.
3: Hmm.
2: And I have stayed with that. Uh, I have practiced that in Canada. Because they always say, you know, you're you representing Canada. I say, I represent the oppressed. Wherever, Whether it be in the U.S. or Canada or the Caribbean, I like to know that I look at food as a human right. And um, one of the main areas and this was mostly for the benefit of the allies the established food justice, and one of the main areas of interest in food justice are the vision with dismantling racism in the food system. And one of the main programming of that um, the area of food justice was anti-racism training now when you tell folks they need to do anti-racism training they they feel that you, you call them out and say they're racist no anti-racism training is for everyone whether it be of african descent indigenous descent, uh latino latinx uh asian or you remember, european descent it's training for everyone to understand mm-hmm. racism understand the historical perspective of racism so so we could we, we could work among each other respectfully mm-hmm. because as i say you know i mean people practice racism they don't even know the practice racism because they want to learn so one of the things i think allies need to do is assessing organizational racism i mm-hmm. just said much of these groups i work with these groups for 20 something years and i realized good folks a lot of knowledge but they don't know about culture they don't know how to navigate the areas of people of Afghanistan because they don't read about people of Afghanistan. they don't know people of Afghanistan, honestly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So they would so they, be trying things. But we don't try things, we practice black food sovereignty in practice in our community. But the empowerment. Because that is the idea to really practice of being sovereign, of looking after yourself. A good example, you know what I mean? Like you come in a community and you do some work and then you disappear. No train that person in that community to do the work so they would do the work and, and in that way you now, it's it, it's sustainable because that person is still in that community, still in still being an example for leadership, that mm-hmm. uh, a child in that community could aspire to that, that position, you know what I mean? So for instance, who make decisions in these organizations? Does your organization have a goal to dismantle racism? Is a goal reflected in, in decision-making process? You know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: There's shared analysis, a shared analysis of how decisions are made. It's like some I see some young people say it's a new form of colonization. Mm. And my friends, my allies, who I work with, you know what I mean? They don't have a clue, and they always they say, you know I me, mean, oh, it's another angry black man or another angry black woman. No, it's just that. My friends who are allies, they need to learn more about people of African descent, and and the expectation that they have, they gotta throw that out the door. That's mm-hmm. why they, that's why they have to do anti-racism training. That's why I have to read about it. It's a particular area, because you see, when 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 you when you living in a world of white supremacy, everything is right.
3: Yeah.
2: You know what I mean? And so if you don't understand, that's an area that. They need to learn about. It's a learned, they got to unlearn colonized behavior. So, it's about training. I think the best thing to do is start with anti-racism training. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Learn about the history of racism. What is racism? You know what I mean? And and, and it it goes from there. So, the allyship would be a partner with the terms of reference, of respect. Mm You know what I mean? Who Mm -hmm. control, who develop the budget, I can tell you something, I see some job descriptions truly, and um uh, some people working for like one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year right in this Toronto city. I have been working for 20 something years, most times less than fifty thousand dollars a year, okay mm-hmm. because it, it, it was always a battlefield trying to do trying to stay african centered trying to it, it to be a black food sovereignty okay you're not turning the line, you're not saying... Yes, matter, no master. it, it you, You're trying to be who you want to be as that person mm-hmm. representing culture. So sometimes people see it as as you're being aggressive, and, and and but you know they said it's a decade of people of African descent, and the reason why is that they want to make sure that they see more justice in the system, they see more development in the system. People of African descent, and that comes with leadership. Mm-hmm. So we have to have leadership. So. For, for my allies and, 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 uh, and my friends who want to be able to help is to, what, what are the cultures of your organization?
3: Mm.
2: You, you gotta cultivate food justice. And food justice is not like a, a, a food justice dinner or a food justice garden. Okay. Yeah. It's a state of mind. Food justice is a state of mind of making sure that you have a, a food system that is just. That look at human rights from the perspective of it being human. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, folks just think that you're not seeing them with, with their games that they're playing. But man, it's showing, man. It, it it you could see it. You know, I mean, I don't know if these folks. just be sometimes you they have a saying in Jamaica. You play the fool, to catch the wise. Mm. Okay, but you could see through it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, like 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 making Communities more food secure has to be intentional. For instance, there's a budget for $16 million in Toronto, sharing nutrition program. Now that's for the whole city. There, there's certain, there's certain communities that don't even need that money. Right. That money needs to go in the most vulnerable food insecure communities. I talk about in the black community where 6.6% of black children in this city are food insecure. So, in relation to allyships, I would tell my friends, very good people, they need to read and learn about allyship, mm-hmm. what it is. And they got work to do. You got, They got to go back to the university. you got to go and learn this shit. Because mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't dream and wish for it. This is now wishing for it you got to go and put your head in a book and learn about Marcus Garvey, about Walter Rodney. you got to learn about the relevant people to know about people of African descent. Thank you so much. Uh, this was so good. Thank you
1: so much. You have so much wisdom and so much knowledge. And I appreciate you sharing your time with
2: me. Thank you so much, Stephanie.
0: Seedheads is produced by the Beto Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security, a program of Seed Change. Whose main office is located on the traditional, unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. To find episode transcripts and learn more about seed work in Canada, please visit seedsecurity.ca.